In the words of another preacher I've heard recently, don't give the devil a seat at your table. Because he wants to sit down and ruin everything. But he doesn't know that his, his fate is already decided. Actually, he probably does know. He just doesn't want to accept it. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the first chapter of the book of James in the New Testament. It's right after Hebrews. Book of James, chapter 1. As you're doing that, I want to tell you a little story. It's a true story. Um, I want to just kind of give you some uh, details, like a recap. Back in 2011, you may remember this, it was, it was national news, Casey Anthony was arrested and charged with the murder of her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee Anthony. And it would, it would have happened in June of 2008, but it was not until 2011 that the little girl was found, her remains were found, and they arrested her mother, Casey Anthony. And uh, it, was a, it was a national headline because uh, for nearly three years, Casey, the mother, had spun this tale that um, her daughter had been kidnapped. And so the, there was time elapsed. It was not until that she was found near her home that authorities then had been investigating all along and had then arrested um, Casey charged her with murder. Now, there was a mountain of evidence. I mean, it was a lot of evidence pointing toward Casey Anthony's guilt. But that did not stop her and her team of defense attorneys from coming in the very first day the first day of the trial, and they floated out there um, three or four different stories, all a little bit different, but none of them were true, but they floated all these stories out there trying to create you know, what's in, in legal circles. It's reasonable doubt. So there's a jury there, and if, if there is reasonable doubt of the guilt of the defendant, then the jury is instructed to find a, a verdict of not guilty. Well, here, here's some of the... I, I, I did a little bit of research. Here's some of the stories that her defense attorneys threw out there. First, Casey was mentally unstable because she had been abused by her father. Not true, but you know, they floated it on out there to see if it grabbed any traction with the jury... No, it, it did not. So then the next story was, and this is all in an opening statement now, just as if they said, well, this could have happened, or this could have happened, or this could have happened. This was the second one. Uh, her daughter had actually been at her parents' house and had accidentally drowned in their swimming pool, so they covered it up. So it was the parents' fault. No, no, that wasn't it. Her daughter had been kidnapped by the babysitter. That was it, kidnapped by the babysitter. No, no. But this was the one that really, 
really uh, the icing on the cake. It was the, the meter reader in their neighborhood, the guy who actually discovered and found the girl's remains near the home. It was his, his fault because he probably just wanted to get, it was a $250,000 reward for information leading to the, 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 you know, the recovery of her and finding her. So it was him that did it, the meter reader. None of these stories were true. Story after story. But here, here's the thing. All that nonsense had one purpose. Heaven forbid somebody take personal responsibility for their actions. Because, you know, here's what you never, ever see. Maybe one in a million times. You never see someone as a defendant in the case come into trial, come into the courtroom, and the defense attorney stands up getting ready to make an opening statement, and the defendant says, no, 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 sit down. I, I got this. And they stand up and they say, you know what? I'm guilty. I did it. Let's just, you know, we, we need to save all this money and all this time and all this media nonsense. I'm guilty. What's my punishment? You don't, you don't see that. Because that would mean somebody standing up taking personal responsibility for their actions. Now, I should note the verdict in the case. Anybody know? Not guilty. Not guilty. So, it worked. Let me, let me throw out a half a dozen stories that could possibly have happened. Even though the medical examiner's report said definitively homicide by undetermined means. It wasn't an accident. She was killed. But no one is going to take personal responsibility. So what does that all have to do with today's passage? In James, in this portion of chapter 1, there's going to be a really, really clear contrast between here's who we are Here's what happens to us, and here's who God is. But don't miss the opportunity that we have when we go through various trials. If we will see it through God's perspective, if we will understand who we are, who He is, and then we actually take responsibility for who we are instead of trying to play this blame game and as if we're in a court of law trying to create reasonable doubt. James chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. If you follow along with me, here's what the Spirit of God has inspired James to write for us. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, 
that you would speak so clearly to us today. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to your word. For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen. There's three things in this text that we should pay attention to. Three things in these short verses. Number one, endurance brings a reward. We talked about trials last week. We opened up the letter last week, 1 through 11, and we saw about James' idea of uh, considering joyful circumstances, even in the midst of trials. Endurance comes with a reward. Look at verse 12. The one who perseveres through a trial is actually blessed. Now, that doesn't make really good sense because normally when we, we talked about this last week, when we go through something bad, we don't usually see it as a blessing. That's not normal in, in the world's eyes. But it should be more normal in the Christian's eyes. And here's why. You persevere under trial, you're blessed because the Lord has promised a reward to those who love Him. Look at verse 12. Once he's been approved. So you have to be approved by God as having persevered under this trial. And then, what is the reward? The crown of life. You will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, every trial brings a temptation. Now, don't get, don't get the two confused. Don't get a trial confused with a temptation. But every trial brings a temptation. Let me give you an example. Financial difficulty is a trial, but it could tempt us to question God's provision in our lives. The death of a loved one is a trial, but it could tempt us to question God's love for us. Well, if he loved me, he wouldn't let that person that I love so much pass away. The suffering of the righteous or the... the, the apparent ease of the wicked in this world. That's a trial as we have to consider that. Look, well, why, they don't care nothing about God. Why is their life so good, it looks like, on earth? I'm trying to follow Jesus. Why am I suffering? That's a trial. But it brings the temptation to question God's justice or maybe even God's existence. If God was real, you see where I'm going? That's, that's, a, that's a temptation to think that way. That's, that's not biblical. But we could, be, we could be tempted to think that way. But endurance through a trial brings a very clear reward, the crown of life that the Lord has promised. That's number one. Endurance comes with a reward. Number two, temptation does not come from God. And I think that bears repeating. Temptation does not come from God. Look at verses 13 through 15. Don't blame your temptation on God. We saw in that opening illustration there was a, a desire to, to blame everybody else in the world but yourself. We can't blame God for our temptation. The Bible tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil. You see that in verse 13. God cannot be tempted by evil. Well, let me, if you want to really see that clearly, let's go back to Luke chapter 4. Just think about this in my mind. You probably know the story. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, is the temptation of Jesus. He was at, led out to the wilderness for 40 days. He was very tired and hungry. At his weakest point, and the devil came to tempt him. You remember the story? He was tempted in three different ways. 
What was the first one? Jesus, you look hungry. You look tired. Why don't you turn those stones into bread? What did Jesus say? It is, yes, sir, it is written. It is written. The word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then what, what did the devil say next? He took and showed him all these kingdoms of the world and said, I can give these to whoever I want to give them to. I'll give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. What did Jesus say? It is written. You see a theme developing here? It is written. What is it written? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, the word of God. You remember the third temptation? Takes him to the top of the temple. Why don't you throw yourself down, Jesus, because then the angels are going to save you, and look, think what the people will think of you when they see that happen. And you remember what Jesus said? It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil fled. He ran away because God cannot be tempted by evil. He uses the word, that, and that should be a little word of encouragement for us. If we're tempted towards sin, what's our first defense? The word of God. Our first defense is the word of God. But then the Bible goes on there in that same verse, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Well, if we want to cement that in our minds, we can go back to 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote these words. And this is very helpful for us because sometimes we think, well, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes these words, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure the temptation. So here's what happens. God doesn't tempt us. He provides the way of escape from temptation. The other end of the spectrum, not only does God not tempt any one of us, He is the one providing our escape. The Word of God. If we would simply look to Him when we're tempted and understand that the Word of God is our first line of defense. James, what he's doing here, just like other Jewish and, and Christian authors, he's wanting to show us and place the responsibility for temptation and sin squarely on the shoulders of each human being. It's not God's fault. We can't blame God for what's happening to us. His purpose is to highlight individual responsibility for sin. Totally opposite from what we saw in that opening illustration about Casey Anthony. Individual, personal responsibility for sin. But how do we know that? Let's, look, let's keep reading. Look at verse 14 and then verse 15. Each one is tempted when? When he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. You know what a lust is? It's a desire. Not necessarily of a sexual nature, just in general, a lust is a desire. 
And it's a desire or a, a longing for anything which God has prohibited. See, we're all sinners. And this, this is a, a foundational truth that we have got to wrap our heads around if we're going to win in this daily battle of temptation and submission to God and yielding to the Holy Spirit in our lives. If we're going to fight this battle with the power of Christ in us, we have to see these foundational truths from Scripture. We are all sinners. Is, any, is there any confusion on that? Every one of us. None of us is immune. We are all sinners. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, disobeyed in the garden, and cursed all of humanity. Therefore, every human being who has ever lived, ever will live, is cursed with this curse of sin. Which means, now, now follow me here, because this is really important. We need to know who we are if we're going to know how to move forward in Christ. We are all sinners by nature. Now listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You understand the difference? Let me say it again. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. In other words, it's not like we're born and everything's good and we're, you know, we're living and, and, and one day we commit a sin. Oh, man, now I'm a sinner. That's not how it works. The Bible says we are born with the curse of sin. We are born with a sin nature, which means it is our very nature. Our default position is to disobey God and sin. Here's an example. You ever watch a newborn baby, like, and then even like a two-month, three-month, four-month, six-month-old baby? What do they do when they want something? They scream bloody murder, don't they? And, and then they, when they get what they want, if it's a bottle or they need changing or they need sleep, or then everything's calm. How about this? Maybe when the baby grows up a little bit and maybe about a year, year and a half, two years old, you have to teach your child to deceive. You have to teach your child not to share. Or you have to teach your child to lie or, or try to get away with something. You ever seen a child when mama says, now don't touch that, and here's what they do. <laughs> Let me see if anybody sees me do that. Did you teach them to do that? No, you did not. You know why? Precious little sinner, even at a young age. Sinner. We're all sinners. That means that apart from Christ... And the Holy Spirit of God, if we are left to our own devices, we are going to disobey God. We are going to sin. That's who we are by nature. That's why we need Jesus Christ so much. Because we can't do it on our own. We can't fix that problem. We are sinners by nature, which means, in verse 14, we are tempted when we are enticed or carried away by our own. You see the possession there? Our own sinful desires. It's us. We're the problem. Anybody ever ask that question? Well, if God's so good and holy and he created everything, then why is there so much evil in the world? You ever heard that question? You ever asked that question? Here's a clue. It's us. We're the sinners. Why is there evil in the world? Because we're in the world. 
we're, we're sinners. We're sinners. We disobey God. Let me, let me try to put this in a, uh, in a little different context. Let's think about it in terms of fishing. This just make it real clear. If I'm going to fish, and I'm looking for a particular kind of fish, maybe I'm, maybe I'm trying to get largemouth bass. What am I going to do when I, when I get ready to go fishing? What, I'm going to try to find, I'm going to look in my tackle box, and I'm going to look for the most, what I think is the most attractive bait to get that largemouth to jump on it. I'm going to look for the best bait. Now, may, I like a, a Texas rig plastic worm or a little plastic lizard. I think that that's usually, usually works well. So as I say, I throw that out there for an hour or so, and I got nothing. What am I going to do? I'm going to change bait, right? Maybe they're not looking for a plastic lizard. Maybe they're looking for a jig. Maybe looking for a spinner bait. Maybe looking for something else. So I'm going to try something different. And I'm going to change that bait, and I'm going to throw that out there for a while and see what happens. If they don't bite that, I'm going to change it again, throw that out there. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change the bait until I get a bite. I'm going to find what's attractive to that thing I'm trying to catch. I'm going to keep throwing it until they bite. Once I zero in on that bait that they're going after that day, man, I'm going to just wear it out. What makes you think the devil's any different? See, when I'm going after that largemouth bass, and, they, and let's say I get a bite, and I feel him bump that thing, what am I going to do next? I'm going to set the hook, make sure it's in there good, and I'm going to pull him back to the boat. I'm going to get him in the boat. What, what's going to happen once I get him in the boat? No, I'm not going to catch and release. That, that bass, and hopefully about six or seven of his buddies, is going to get an a engraved invitation as a dinner guest at my house. Except they're going to be in the frying pan. In other words, they're going to be dead. You see how that works? You know what the devil does to you and me? The devil's got a tackle box. And he's going to throw a bait out in front of you. And the first bait or, or two or three may not work. It may not be attractive to you at all. You know, because we we're all unique. We don't all struggle with the same temptation. But we're all the same because we all do struggle with temptation of some kind. Temptation to sin. But here's what the devil's going to do. He's going to tailor make that thing just for you. He's going to find the bait that you like, that looks good in your eyes, the one you just can't stay away from even though you know it's bad. And just like that largemouth bass that's lurking behind that fallen tree sees that pumpkin seed lizard with the chartreuse tail just drop off the top of that thing and slither down through the water, and he just can't stand it. And he's just going to go out there and grab that thing, and next thing you know... I'm going to have a hook in his lip, and he's coming to the boat. That's exactly what the devil's doing with you and me every day. He's looking. Peter says he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That sounds very unpleasant to me. That's what the devil's doing. We are enticed and carried, dragged away by our own lust. 
And look at verse 15. Look what the Bible says. Temptation. Lust. It, it gives birth to sin. And what is the goal and the ultimate end of sin? It brings death. That's what happens to us. Sin leads to death. And let, let me just say this. When you get a clear picture of Satan casting that line out in front of you and you understand what his goal is, is to entice you and carry you away and the end of that is death, that picture, it ought to be terrifying. It ought to cause us to pause and take notice of what's going on because understand there is no problem that we will ever face in life that's not a spiritual problem. Everything that we're going to face in our lives has a spiritual nature to it because our enemy, the devil, is after us. It's progressive. It starts off small. That temptation kind of it activates our sinful desire. Then our sinful desire pushes us towards sin. And if we're not careful, if we're not right here, if we're not like Jesus, it is written. If we're not in the Word, then here's what's going to happen. That sinful desire is going to carry us down the road farther than we want to go. It's going to give birth to sin, and sin's going to grow up and bring us death. You see, spiritual maturity, Christian maturity, it's not measured by no longer being tempted. It's measured by not giving in to temptation. See, in other words, our lives, our whole lives, we're going to be subject to temptation. We're in a sinful, we're sinful people in a sinful world. So as long as we live, we're going to be subject to temptation. So we, can, we don't need to measure our spiritual maturity by, oh, well, I'm not tempted anymore. That, that's, that's not uh, re realistic. We're going to be tempted. Spiritual maturity is through the Holy Spirit of God, we're not going to be enticed and carried away toward our temptation because we're, we're in the Word and we're trusting in God and we're being led by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? We, we're following Jesus. And we, as we grow in Jesus, we are not going to be carried away, dragged away by our temptation. All right. Number one was endurance comes with a reward. Number two, temptation does not come from God. Finally, number three, we need to remember the character of God. Who is this God we're serving? 16, 17, and 18 in your Bible. James says, do not be deceived. Don't be misinformed about who God is. And then he addresses his audience, my beloved brethren. You know what it tells me? It tells me we are loved by God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the audience of this letter and this sermon. And he's saying, don't be deceived. In other words, pay close attention, verse 17. Every good gift, every good thing comes from God. And who is this God that's given these gifts? He's the Father of lights. You know what that means? You ever go out on a, on a dark night in the country? It's real country dark. 
You see the stars. Maybe it's a, a big moon. He made every one. Bright sunny day, blue skies, a few clouds. He made that sun. Oh, and by the way, this, this earth you're standing on to watch all that, he made that earth too. Oh, yeah, that, that, everybody take a deep breath. Did you enjoy that gift from God you just took? Because that's what it was. Every time you breathe, it's a gift of your creator. Just think about that for a minute. Every good thing given, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of light. And who is he? There is no variation. There is no shadow of turning. You, you know the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness? There is no shadow of turning with thee. That's where that came from. He's faithful. He's good. He's our creator. He loves us. We are loved in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. See, believers can't be led astray into thinking that God himself is tempting us to evil. He's the giver of good gifts to his children. He's not going to throw a temptation in front of us. And he might allow it to happen. But just like 1 Corinthians 10 says, he's going to give us the way of escape so we can stand up under it. He's given us His Word. He's given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and lead us if we'll simply yield and submit to the leadership of God in our lives. He is good. There is no shadow of turning with our God. Verse 18. How do we know this? Because what has He done for us? He's redeemed us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, God is sovereign over all creation. His will is perfect and he has saved us through the finished work of jesus on the cross and so when you read verse 18 it says in the exercise of his will see this is god's god's plan he's a creator he knows what he's doing his will he brought us forth by the word of truth the word of truth is the gospel so by the by the life and work and ministry and death and resurrection of jesus christ he brought us forth he's talking about who's us it's believers in Christ. He brought us forth by the word of truth. He's redeemed us. You know what that means? That means every time a sinner repents and turns to Jesus Christ by the grace of God, that's a reminder, that's a visible reminder of where all this is going. Let me tell you a story. You see, once upon eternity, God has always existed. He was, he is, he always will be. And he is the starting point of this story, the source of all creation. He made earth, he made heaven, he made everything that is. And earth was the home to this perfect garden paradise where the first human beings, Adam and Eve, were going to be living as worshipers, loving God, serving God, enjoying a relationship with him. And it was perfect harmony. Adam and Eve enjoyed immense freedom to be managers of all that God had created. There's just one restriction. Don't eat the fruit from a certain tree. And as amazing as this perfect world was, God has an enemy, and our enemy tempted Adam and Eve, just like we're tempted every day, tempted Adam and Eve toward disobedience. 
And in rebellion, they chose to disobey God. They ate the fruit. So here's the problem. The consequences of that sin, that disobedience, the consequences were devastating because not only is all mankind now under the curse of sin, all of creation is affected by this brokenness now between us and God. It destroyed the harmony that existed. So now we're fallen, we're separated from God. We have a desperate need to be made right with God again. But see, God didn't leave things like that. He didn't leave us to suffer forever under sin. He made a promise. He set our hope upon a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ who he would send into this world to live a sinless, perfect life, never disobeying God, and then, even though he was innocent, willingly lay down his life for us. He was going to be arrested, beaten, ultimately killed by sinful men just like us. He was crucified for our sin in our place on a cross. But just to show how faithful God is, because he made the promise, he kept the promise, because on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, victorious over sin, death, hell, all of it. And so that points us to what's going to happen one day, because everyone who puts their trust in Jesus alone is going to have a fullness, a rescue that's secured because of Christ's death and his substitution for us on the cross. God's going to come back, and he's going to make everything new again, like it was intended from the beginning. See, that's, that's what we're waiting for now. Jesus has come, and he lived and died, and he rose, and he ascended back into heaven. He rescued sinners by his blood and now we're waiting for God in Christ to return and restore everything to its original perfection and everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection is promised eternity with God so then we can love him and serve him and worship him and enjoy the glory of his presence that's what the future holds for God's people. And we read verse 18. It's this little phrase there, and it says, we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You know what that means? It's a foretaste. It's a down payment. It's just a, a foreshadowing of what's to come. See, every time somebody gets saved, we should think, man, one day Jesus is coming back. He's going to make everything new. He just, he, made just, he, he just made this brother new right here. And, and so now, just like he did, just like he brought about a change in this person's life, one day he's going to bring him back a change in the world. Everything's going to be as it was intended to be. All things will become new. That's the gospel. That's the truth of Jesus Christ. That's the word of truth that James refers to in verse 18. See, we're not hopeless if we're in Christ. We're full of hope because he set our hope on Christ. So please understand, this text of Scripture 
It tells us a lot about who God is. It tells us about who we are. It reminds us there's a reward if we will endure under trial and persevere. But the main thing it does is it points us back to Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. And if we don't get enticed and carried away and dragged off by our own sinful desires, if we'll just keep our focus, Hebrews 12, to fixing our eyes on Jesus, if we'll just do that, then we really will have hope. We really will have joy in the midst of trials. And as we grow in that relationship with Jesus, bit by bit, little by little, day by day, we'll find ourselves not yielding to those temptations, not being enticed and carried away as often. It's only in Jesus Christ. Don't miss the main idea of every single sermon. It's Jesus. There is no other hope but Jesus.